Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good afternoon. Um, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Dr. Marek Hudakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics, where he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in fa failed and failing states. He is the author of Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. Professor Hudakiewicz is the head of the Center for Intermarium Studies at the Institute of World Politics. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Uh, thank you for being here. I uh, would like to thank especially my captive audience from Geography and Strategy, which we interrupted so we could do this. Um, we remember Poland because Poland was first to fight. Many were very surprised because the odds disfavored Warsaw. It stood alone, eye to eye, with um, two totalitarian powers, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. Uh, one should not be surprised, after all, Poland has not changed its position for over a thousand years. Some people say that you know, the geopolitics is not important. In fact, geopolitics is a self-fulfilling prophecy if we just should stop thinking geopolitically. It'll all go away. There will be no aggression. We could hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Well, Reality is what it is, and uh, if you stop thinking about geopolitics, geopolitics will think about you. As Trotsky said about war, uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Same with geopolitics. Putting, putting your head in the sand uh, results in suicide. So, even if you don't believe in geopolitical determinism, you should be at least aware of your geographic whereabouts. And, and Poland was. So let's stick to geopolitics. The Second Polish Republic, interwar state, was between Germany and Russia, just as it is right now. Things are good for Poland when uh, Germany is decentralized. And things are good for Poland, where Russia is in the throes of some crisis, smuta, or times of trouble. Or it's occupied by a foreign power like the Mongols. And things are good for Poland. However, the minute Germany centralizes, then the nation's leaders focus on matters of political foreign expansion, in particular towards the East, whether it's through annexation, partial or uh, full, or just a relatively benign increase of Germany's sphere of influence. Uh, when Russia is not occupied by foreigners or it's not occupied with its own internal problems, it is interested likewise in foreign expansion in all sorts of directions. And that's bad for the neighbors because 
any time it pushes west, it inevitably comes to collude with Poland. And it, Russia's first move is to satellitize Poland and then to absorb it. It has been like that for centuries. Whereas the Germans treat their satellites in an arrogant or at least impatient manner, even the Third Reich was capable of putting up with the dwarves that submitted to Berlin. Uh, unfortunately, Russia is not aware of the existence of the concept of a junior partner, even to the extent that the Third Reich could relate to, say, Bulgaria or Hungary. That is unknown in Russia's political dictionary. Moscow must dominate absolutely. There is therefore no room to maneuver vis-a-vis -vis the Kremlin. Just total submission. In the interwar period, Poland felt the impact of the, conse the consequences of the lack of the decisive Allied victory in World War I. General Pershing said, we take Berlin, otherwise the Germans won't know that they lost the war. Unfortunately, liberals led by David Lloyd George said, oh, if we continue fighting, we may lose some people. Well, congratulations, we stopped, and what happened next was World War II and the Holocaust. All compliments of David Lloyd George and likewise-minded liberals, because we didn't finish the business. Germany's will to fight was not broken. A lethal mistake. Uh, instead of a victory in World War I, we had a 20-year armistice, as Marshal Falk Foch remarked. And we had German revanchism, as well as the legend of uh, the blow to the back, or stab in the back, in addition, there was the myth of the Carthaginian Versailles Treaty, even though Germany was treated much more nicely than the Second Reich uh, 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 treated France in 1871, not to mention Russia at Brest-Litovsk in 1918. Well, the second power, which, in addition to Germany, which um, opposed the Versailles Treaty, was Soviet Russia. Both states continued the alliance which uh, was um, initiated by the plots by the German military intelligence to wreak havoc on Russia during the First World War. And it resulted uh, in sending Lenin and his comrades in a sealed train and afterwards many more trains full of gold to maintain Bolshevik subversion and Bolshevik revolution in Russia. It is Germany's fault we had to reckon with communism because the Germans unleashed the virus on the world. After the war, the partnership endured, both militarily and commercially. And that, notwithstanding the liberal system of the Weimar Republic, which was still nationalist. Uh, additionally, Moscow and Berlin complemented each other very well on the field of anti-Polish uh, subversion and propaganda. The commonality of interest was sealed first by the Treaty of Rapallo in <coughs> April 1922 and then it was uh, blessed by the West by the Treaty of Locarno. The French, the British and others simply uh, facilitated German revanchism and uh, Bolshevik, the spread of Bolshevik revolution so long as it did not impact the West, so long as it was con 
confined to the intermarium. Uh, by that time, the United States had withdrawn from world politics. They had abandoned practically all allied agreements and isolationism became our official policy here of Washington, D.C. The British toyed with uh, an Olympian splendid isolation. That means they withdrew as well. They thought that the balance of power politics meant the necessity to weaken France, which had emerged victorious from the war, or at least apparently so. Therefore, the British resolved to help the Germans, or at least not to thwart them. Without America and Europe, all old antagonisms surfaced very fast. Uh, the French tried to play a game, uh, and they weren't very good at it. According to Parisian theories, a weak Poland should substitute for powerful Russia as a counterbalance to mad Germany in this new geopolitical system. Therefore, Paris signed an appropriate alliance with Warsaw in 1921. The alliance served as a basis for the creation of the so-called Little Entente, or a regional alliance, including Romania, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia. The dwarfs were not only to serve as cordon sanitaire vis-à-vis -vis Bolshevism, but also to check uh, Germany's revanchism. Well, good luck. The alliance was fiction from the get-go. Romania was too weak to block anybody. Yugoslavia was too divided to take care of itself because the Serbs dominated the Croats, Bosniaks, and the Slovenes, and everybody hated each other. There was no, not even talk in Belgrade about stopping the Soviets or Germans. Uh, the Czechs were in the worst position. Prague was afraid of Berlin, but it kissed up to Moscow. More, moreover, at the time of mortal danger to the Polish Republic, the Czechs attacked uh, the Poles. When, when the Polish were trying to fend of the Bolsheviks. The Czechs attacked the Poles and cut off Session Silesia from its roots. Uh, further, Czechoslovakia was in the grips of family quarrel, as the Slovaks believed they got the short end of the stick, and pretty soon they were so alienated they wanted nothing to do with Prague. Uh, both the Hungarian and German minorities were unhappy, and the German minority, in particular in Sudetenland, worked actively for the destruction of the Czechoslovak Republic. Sudeten Germans prepared a rebellion, which never happened simply because Czechoslovakia rolled over and surrendered to Hitler. Warsaw evened its scores with Prague in 1938, when the Czechs capitulated before the Third Reich in Munich, and Wehrmacht entered Czechoslovakia unopposed, without any Czech resistance, the Poles returned to Session Silesia with arms and hands, restoring status quo ante of November 1919. Uh, according to the Polish government of the time, there was no sense to allow ethnic Poles in Czechoslovakia to fall under the rule of Hitler. This was quite suicidal of Poland. The Polish Republic, Republic was one of the main beneficiaries of the Versailles Peace Treaty, and it behooved it to defend it. Instead, Poland 
violated it by reclaiming what was a majority Polish area and historically Polish. The Versailles system should have been more important for Poland than session polls, despite uh, Czechs, uh, Czech treachery. They should have, the Poles should have sucked it up. The alliance with Prague should have been a priority because of geopolitical calculations. That was not so. Warsaw preferred to cooperate with, uh, with uh, uh, Hungary rather than with the Czechs. So it's no wonder that in 1938, Warsaw rejected a Soviet proposal to let the Soviet troops through. Stalin promised to help Czechoslovakia. Of course, he was interested in taking over Poland, so no sane Polish government would have allowed the Red Army in. They would have stayed forever. Further, there was also no guarantee that Stalin would have fought against Hitler for the freedom of the Czechs. In a similar vein, Poland rejected years of wooing by Hitler. Hitler wanted Poland to join the Third Reich in an expedition against the Soviet Union. And the Polish government said, no. Poland was supposed to cede Silesia and Polish Pomerania, incidentally called in a master stroke of political war warfare genius, the Corridor, as if it were not populated by human beings, mostly Polish Catholics. This was a genius trick. Uh, but the Poles said no to that too. Poland was supposed to be compensated in Ukraine. In the Ukraine. At that point, following the partition of um, Czechoslovakia, France woke up and it has it had um, revived the alliance with Poland of 1921. Soon Great Britain closed ranks and issued guarantees as well as signed a military treaty with Poland. This was March 31st, 1939 and then August 25th, 1939. Warsaw, London and Paris deluded themselves that if these facts, alliances, don't retard war, uh, don't stop the war, then at least they'll retard it. However, Berlin was guessing correctly that if Germany attacks Poland, no one would help her. Hitler thought, on the other hand, that if Wehrmacht throws itself against France, the Poles are crazy enough to keep the word of honor and they would attack Germany, which was a correct assessment. Therefore, the German tanks were aimed at Warsaw first. And the Poles naively trusted their exotic uh, allies, the French and the British. Well, the British were, fairly speaking, were not in position to help. They had the Navy and some of the air force, but their land forces were no match for the Wehrmacht. The French could. There were about nine divisions, including three first-line German divisions, facing about a hundred divisions on the Western Front of the French. And the French never moved. They left Poland to its own devices, thus violating the Alliance. Well, did the Poles have a different choice other than oppose Hitler. Perhaps 
they should have gone with the Soviets, with Stalin. Well, that option didn't exist. To surrender to Moscow meant uh, a complete loss of independence. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania did just that. They surrendered to Moscow. And they were overwhelmed, sucked in, without firing a shot, practically. Uh, therefore, Warsaw rejected also Stalin's feelers to participate, along with the Kremlin, in the partition of the Baltic states. Just like Hitler wanted Poland's participation in the attack east against the Bolsheviks, so did Stalin wanted to involve Poland in some kind of a geopolitical scheme to buy it. To ignore Stalin's proposition meant that Poland uh, endeavored to continue to maintain its neutrality. The Polish government called it the policy of balance. It reflected itself in bilateral treaties of non-aggression. First, Warsaw signed one with Moscow in July 1932 and then with Berlin in January 1934. The last treaty was, um, uh, cre well, was created or was signed after the fiasco of Marshal Piłsudski's initiative to convince France to wage a preventive war against the Third Reich after Hitler's democratic assumption of power in 1933. The French said, well, the Poles are warmongers. Again, the government was liberal in France and progressive. Poland thought it could balance between the two totalitarian monsters indefinitely. But one can only balance so long when the, when the states, the entities against which you execute this maneuver, remain enemies of one another. Once they make up, there is nobody to balance against. Because the enemies are now friends. And they usually turn against the person who was doing the balancing, or the state that was doing the balancing act. Unfortunately, in a classical maneuver, geopolitical maneuver, repeated through centuries, Germany mutually fell in love with Russia. The, the marriage was announced on August 23rd, 1939, as the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact. The nuptials took place over the dead body of Poland during the September campaign of 1939. The Second World War would not have erupted had it not been for the alliance of the two totalitarian states, Soviet Russia and the Third Reich. Hitler attacked on September 1st, 1939, Stalin joined on September 17, immediately after signing in Moscow a ceasefire, official ceasefire treaty with Japan following a crushing Soviet victory in border war at Kolkingol. The Japanese call it Nomonhan. The Red Army invasion decided the Polish campaign. The Poles fought alone against two enemies. Allied help never materialized. The Polish Republic struggled for five weeks, and it was almost as long as it took the Third Reich to overwhelm France in 1940. The last Polish army was destroyed on October 5th, 1939, in the field. There was never any capitulation, no negotiations. A few units of the Polish army continued to wage guerrilla war against both 
Germans and Soviets, Nazis and Soviets. To compare, Denmark fell in eight hours. That's how long it takes to drive from the German border to Copenhagen. Uh, I used to think that the only people who resisted were the bare poor clad guards at the royal palace. They did fight until the king told them to stand down. But there was a single company that didn't get a message. And it actually tried to oppose the Germans and fired up some shots. So my hat goes off to them. It took three days to drive through Norway. Belgium lasted a week. The Netherlands two weeks. And in Western Europe, Stalin was not helping Hitler, other than supplying him with gas oil and all the raw materials that uh, the Third Reich needed for its victory to replenish armies that had been terribly challenged and lost much of their equipment and much of their ammunition. The role of the Polish Republic at the international field ended in the fact on September 1st, 1939, and the Euro perhaps on October 5th, 1939. <coughs> Polish government in exile became a hostage of its allies, first France and then Great Britain. It stopped to be sovereign. It stopped to be sovereign. The Polish ally created trouble, that's how Churchill viewed it, especially after the Third Reich attacked the Soviet Union, forcing the switch of alliances. Stalin now became a Democrat and a liberal. Roosevelt and Cher Churchill sold Poland to Stalin in Tehran in 1943, in Yalta in 1945, and in Potsdam in 1945. And it didn't really matter how bravely the Polish armed forces fought on land, in air, and water, and seas, in the West, on every single front, even in China, Polish pilots. It just didn't matter. And it counted for nothing that Poland created Europe's largest resistance organization. The Poles were sold down the river, and they became victims, once again, of geopolitics. Freedom returned after 1989, and then some Poles, mostly conservatives, following in the footsteps of their intellectual predecessors, conservatives and monarchists, people like Stanislaw Tsatmatskiewicz and Anna Bohemski, began to ponder whether it was not worth joining the Germans against the Soviets. Hitler, after all, was kinder to his allies than Stalin, to the states which he absorbed. There would be no Auschwitz, there would be no Gulag and mass murders of the Polish Christian elite. Holocaust would not have taken place on the Polish land because Poland would have been an ally, which would not have let Hitler do that to Polish citizens. Perhaps it could even could have even done as well as Bulgaria saving its Jews. Who knows? For me, however, for us, the choice between Hitler and Stalin is the choice between syphilis and gonorrhea. <laughs> uh, during the Second World War, Poland had two totalitarian enemies. It fought against both. I am very sorry that Great Britain and the United States decided that there was only one enemy, Hitler. Unfortunately, only General George Patton advised sagely, first we take Berlin, next we take Moscow. Patton understood geopolitics well. Perhaps he was Polish. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll take a few questions, and I'm afraid we'll have to make much, uh, ourselves scarce because there's already a line to occupy this room. So, any questions, please? Can you talk a little bit more, Mark, about what was happening 
in those weeks in September in terms of what the Polish government was doing to survive under those circumstances? What was actually happening? Well, uh, Commanding their forces. Uh, how was this happening? Okay. The government very quickly evacuated Warsaw with, with um, um, the diplomatic corps because of the bombing. They should have known from Spain and Manchuria and other places that a new style of war entailed targeting civilians. They lacked the necessary imagination because you simply, oftentimes you simply can't relate to reality even if it's hitting you with bombs. What? You're dropping <coughs> bombs on an open city? Anyway, so the government moved. Uh, there was some communication with the general headquarters because the military command moved as well. But most of the time, because the communications were broken uh, and contact was, became increasingly haphazard, the armies was, were left on their own. Uh, the, Poles, well, the Polish government didn't think the campaign would last that long because of the French and the British. So they made an unwise decision to line up their borders. And the Germans attacked from everywhere, including with the Slovak army, which not too many people know about, but Slovakia was a Nazi satellite, so it attacked Poland. That put the Polish armies at a disadvantage. They tried to withdraw and regroup. And at one point, there was a a successful offensive stage against the Germans who were stopped for about three days, that's the Battle of Bzdura. But then the Germans resumed, resumed their offensive. There were certain outposts which defended themselves, for instance, a battalion at Wizna stopped Guderian's army because the Germans couldn't move again for three days against a battalion. There is even a heavy metal band in Sweden that immortalized the Battle of Wizna. I'd play it, but then you run from the institute because it's <laughs> heavy metal. Um, Sabaton is, it's called, if you want to uh, look at it. Uh, at the Battle of um, the Baltic Coast, there were three spots the Polish post, post office, which was ex-territorial in Gdańsk, in the, in the, in the Freistadt Danzig, was supposed to defend itself for an hour, it defended itself for um, eight hours, and it's legendary, but eventually the Germans shot all the defenders. But then there was an, a military outpost with a company, so 120 soldiers. When you see footage from um, the beginning of World War, Two, usually you don't see the 4.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning bombing of an uh, undefended city of Wielun, just leveled for propaganda and terror purposes, but you see a, a, a German cruiser opening fire from about half a kilometer away at the Polish military outpost at Westerplatte. Well, they were supposed to last eight hours, they lasted seven days a week against about, in, aside from the ship, a regiment of infantry and then some other random units, including, I think, the Sturmabteilung. And finally, there was the Hell Peninsula. They were supposed to last uh, seven days, and they held out. This is right here. They held out until, I, I think, the 6th or 7th of uh, October. So they were surrounded on all, all sides, from the sea, from the air, and from the land. And they just wouldn't give up. A, a friend of my foster father's was a lieutenant commander who was still very sore many years later that they ran out of ammunition and had to give up. Uh, but m most of the story is chaos. Nobody was pre prepared for the blitzkrieg. The Poles really thought they could tough it out until the Allied came to 
their assistance by attacking the Germans. Hitler was really worried about it, but he gambled that only the Poles were crazy enough to keep their end of the bargain, so the French were irrelevant. It was not a question of just getting a weak ally out of the way. It was a calculated gamble. So the army started falling apart. They attempted to regroup on the Vistula line. That only slowed the Germans down, the Blitzkrieg, a little bit. Remember, Blitzkrieg was like cavalry in the old days. It enveloped, broke through uh, the front line, enveloped the enemy, and disorganized the rear, cutting off supplies and creating overall havoc. The Poles began retreating to the east, to um, uh, to uh, the borderlands, Kresit, where there were military depots as well as reserve divisions being formed. And when the Soviets showed up, there was uh, confusion, except for border troops, which for the most part fought and fought very ferociously against the Soviets, because those were their orders to protect the borders. The Polish army received conflicting orders. Marshal Smigurits, the commander-in-chief, issued an order, don't shoot at the Soviets, because maybe he was deluding himself, they were coming to join the Poles against uh, the Nazis, but it was not the case. In some places, civil authority, Polish, uh, welcomed the Soviets, thinking the same thing. In other places, there were uh, ferocious fights. There are two factors you should know about uh, that are important about the Polish campaign, namely, both the Soviets and the Nazis used fifth column, for the Germans, it was ethnic Germans, Volksdeutsche, most of whom were Nazis. So they not only welcomed um, uh, the Wehrmacht, but they had prepared the terrain, so to speak, by staging acts of sabotage, joining German commando units in wrecking havoc behind the Polish lines, saying the Soviets. And there they used ethnic minorities, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Jews, what have you. There was General Mayhem. Uh, first atrocities were committed during the September campaign, including by the Wehrmacht, shooting prodigiously Polish prisoners in a large number of documented cases. There are a few documented Polish atrocities when they retook a place say, in Janów Lubelski after heavy fighting, and they saw their own wounded killed by the Germans, they were not merciful to the POWs. Uh, the Soviets completely disorganized Polish, the Polish defense plan by moving in. And the resistance to the Soviets grew as time progressed, not the other way around. That is first surprise, the border troops fighting. In fact, there were entire columns, in particular under General Orly Grukeman, who uh, led a fighting column that uniquely fought uh, against the Soviets. In other cases, I mentioned the last battle, the so-called army group Kleberg, General Kleberg, which uh, capitulated because it ran out of ammunition on October 5th, 1939. Uh, General Kleberg's troops and units were withdrawing after successful battles against the Soviets. That is, as a body, they were moving to Western Poland, which they would have done too had the Soviets not attacked. But because the Soviets attacked, that entire army was forced to fight interchangeably against one day against the Soviets, another day against the Germans. I mentioned a, a, a minor engagement I mean, for the participants. It was a huge battle, but relatively speaking, regiment, there were regiments, not divisions, involved at Janów Lubelski to the south of Lublin. The troops were fighting with Soviets and Nazis on the same day, not 
One day, next day, no, on the same day, they were fighting with both. For the Poles, there was absolutely no doubt that there were two enemies from the very beginning. Hitler and Stalin. The Poles are, in that way, equal opportunity haters. They hate all totalitarians. Now, uh, and eventually, some places were encircled, like Warsaw became a fortress. My um, friend's uncle was in charge, General Chuma, Andrzej Chuma's uncle. And Warsaw only capitulated when it started running out of water and ammunition on the 28th or 27th of September. Nobody anticipated having to defend open cities. But that was the case. When I was a child, I, my grandmother took me to see a movie called Hubal, which is communist propaganda. It started out with a Polish cavalry colonel somewhere in uh, the Suwałki region and Białystok region calling for surrender of his troops. And my grandmother almost blew up at the movie theater. This was, I don't know, 1973. The truth is the colonel, surrounded on, on all sides by the Germans and the Soviets, turned to his officers and, and said, um, Captain Zaremba, you take a squadron, head south to Hungary. Major Dobzhansky, you take a squadron, go uh, towards Warsaw to see if you can help. And I'm going to take two squadrons, break through and organize guerrilla activity in the Vilno environs, a Shishki, exactly. That's, that was the truth, which which the communist movie didn't show at all. It besmirched a colonel. His name was Jerzy Dombrowski, called Nom de Guerre a great hero of the Polish-Bolshevik War. And World War I, he continued fighting until he got sick and then he, got, he was arrested by the NKVD and executed, of course. So that was, if you will, the Polish experience. It was not only singular with the Nazis being the bad guy. There was no doubt in anyone's mind at that point that number one, the Polish government screwed up. There was a lot of opposition by political opposition. And number two, uh, number two, that there were two enemies. And that was the most important message of September, of September 1939 again. I hope that helps. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned that on 17th September, yeah. the Soviets uh, attacked, uh, uh, took their part of the point. To me personally, that's a very important date. Yes. Because that is the date that my father, who was a prisoner in the Polish concentration camp of Bereza Kartuska, uh-huh was released uh, because it was total chaos. And anyway, when he got home to Ukraine, uh, nine months later, I was born. <laughs> oh, oh. Okay. thank God. But that's, but that's just a prelude to my, to my question. You had well, mentioned that uh, David Lord George had uh, uh, said something and on to Berlin, that that's the way No, 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 there was uh, General John Pershing. He said, well, we take Berlin. Oh, Pershing. Pershing. And oh, Lloyd George completely disagreed. He wanted everything to stop, no matter what the consequences. Yeah, that's interesting, because uh, that probably would have been even a greater mistake than the Versailles Treaty, you know, which was one of the, I think, one of the greatest misfortunes, error of the 20th century, because the Versailles put the entire blame of starting World War One on Germany, whereas in reality, it's all of the five major powers that were equally, equally responsible for starting World War II. There's no, there's no question, and I, was, I know it's a revision of history, but there's more and more materials saying, especially the English and the Russians were the big culprits compared to Germany and Yes, the British, and Austria, the, yes. British the British gave, yes. the British gave the Russians a free hand in exchange for a treaty to contain Russia to Central Asia and not go beyond. Yes, that, no, that, that's true. No, but, but my, my point is that the, okay. the Versailles Treaty created conditions 
first of all, it blamed Germany for starting the war. It demanded reparations, which crippled in very few years the German economy uh, totally. German economy crippled it itself by the German government starting inflation because Germany didn't well, want to pay reparations. Yes. So let me re let me respond. Number one, a when Germany defeated France, the peace was horrible. Uh, Versailles, in comparison, was warm fuzzy in 1871. Yes. In, at brest same story. That, those were Carthaginian, uh, examples of a Carthaginian peace. Versailles, what you're repeating is uh, uh, George, Lord Keynes, basically. Yeah. That's also revisionism. Uh, uh, I don't think Germany was treated unduly harshly. I think, have we, had we captured Berlin, Nobody would have any doubts, and Germany would not have any had any will to fight anymore. They wouldn't have been Hitler. Well, uh, I, I think the conditions, the, the terrible economic conditions, along with the depression, created conditions for Hitler's rise. You mentioned your family was from the Ukraine. There were people dying of starvation before Stalin's famine. So in Germany, things were very comfortable in comparison. Things that were happening everywhere else in the East were horrible, thanks to the United States, in particular future President Hoover. Millions were saved from starvation. Germany had nothing on it. Nothing. This is simply repeating German, including Nazi revisionism, so I object to it. There, there's, you know, I'm sorry. English, Niall Ferguson okay. makes this point. Yes, yes, well. the but story that we, I know one, that Ferguson thesis, I'm sorry, you already had the, this was a speech, not a question. And if you'd like to deliver a lecture, you're very welcome to sign up. So go ahead, Mr. Marshall, hey, in the back. Yes, sir. Could you put the, the, content, the story of Captain Forrest in the context of this discussion? Well, here's one question. Who, who, who murdered the chief rabbi of the Polish army? His name was Baruch Steinberg, Major. Stalin. He was one of the victims of cutting, as were 10% of all officers who were of Jewish origin. So, there are various theories. There is even a theory that Stalin simply continued the purges of the 1930s and included the Poles in them. That's one story. There is another story, which is a majority perspective in Poland. You, just like the Nazis, were mass murdering Polish elites. So were the Soviets. It's easier to rule a people that is decapitated. Yes, sir. Questions, not speeches. Yes, I, I wonder Let, if you could comment on the um, combat readiness and morale of the Red Army at this time, in 39. I raise the question because it's been noted that many people in the Soviet Union were confused as to why Germany, which had been denounced as this terrible fascist state was suddenly a friend and why the Poles, who were brother Slavs, were now the enemy. Oh, Polish lords were the boogeyman. Uh, after World War II, uh, they were replaced in Soviet propaganda by the Zionists. But in the interwar period, it was the Polish lords. Yes, the Eastern Slavs and enslaved Belarusians and Ukrainians, who enjoyed, comparatively speaking, a great life in Poland, uh, not in the Soviet Union, were considered brother Slavs. It's a bit confusing. The secret police troops, NKVD, performed very well. Uh, the Red Army troops, especially those who met no resistance, were just a little bit surprised. They also bought everything that moved. They were poorly armed, poorly dressed, and poorly led, but they spread over the land and took, they were marveling how rich the country was, and it was the poorest part of Poland, eastern borderlands, especially Polisia. But they thought they were in paradise. Um, they were also trained, and there are a few good books about it, but if you have a lot of time, go travel to the Hoover Institution. There are documents deposited uh, at the Hoover which recount the, the occupation. So they were all trained to answer certain questions. For instance, 
they, when they encountered oranges, the troops who were not from the Caucasus had no idea what it was, but they would respond, we have factories of oranges. And the Poles would say, how about Greta Garba and tennis? We produce that too. So, obviously. Yeah, it's very sad. They were all brainwashed, but um, it's, it would be good to have a comparison between German troops or German occupation apparatus and the Soviet occupation apparatus. Uh, the Soviets as individuals, in particular when there were no others, were more humane. They would say, if, if you don't get used to it, you'll croak. And then in front of their own people would be very straight and uh, very res restrained. And sometimes they would help, but there, there are also examples of Germans helping as individuals, you know, so it's the topic is still waiting for its homer, so to speak. But I, I don't think the, the, the Soviet troops were impressive in, in particular. About 10,000 of them died, or casualties in, in that minor engagement. Um, there was a uh, a tank commander, General Pavlov, he didn't do so well. Uh, eventually he and Kombrig Krivoshein held a victory parade in Grodno with the Nazis, so you have pictures of uh, uh, German and Soviet troops together hanging out and having fun. The, somehow the Soviets became honorary Aryans, like the Japanese at least for the duration of the past. <laughs> then, of course, everything changed. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Could you please comment on uh, what number of and what percentage of the Polish forces ultimately made it out of occupied Poland, either through Romania or other ways? Uh, Small percentage. The, the, the armed forces were about a million. Not all of them managed to mobilize because the Allied asked the Poles not to mobilize prematurely because their, the French said, maybe there is no war. Why do you want to provoke Hitler? So the Poles waited till the last second. There were various devices. For instance, the armed forces dispatched postcards through the post system as opposed to going on the radio or informing in a mass manner everybody to show up. So they didn't manage to mobilize. And when the going got tough, the people who stayed in the fight tended to be volunteers, meaning they could have escaped, and they tended to be ethnic Poles. The minorities bolted, for the most part. What number ultimately went on then to fight uh, with British? I guess, ultimately, uh, about... Hmm. 30,000 made it out of Poland itself. Or maybe 100,000 made, made it out of Poland to Hungary and Romania. But then about 30,000 reached either North Africa, where they enrolled in the Polish um, uh, Carpe uh, Carpathian Corps uh, in North Africa under General Kopański, and to France. I can tell you about very quickly about the travails of my foster father. He was from Lvov. He had just returned from mil military training as cadet officer. He was getting ready to go back to the Lvov Polytechnic to study. He was not recalled for those reasons. So they were all mad. They thought the Sanatia dictatorship didn't want them to fight for Poland. Therefore, they organized a group and went out of the city in search of a military force to join, Polish military force. They kept wandering, and they, the Germans approached, so they headed east because someone said the Polish army was reorganizing in the east. They were hoping to hook up with some kind of a unit, maybe a depot, obtain uniforms and weapons. Uh, on the way, they were caught by a Ukrainian nationalist uh, group, which wanted to shoot him, but it pretended to be a red militia to confuse things. They were pro-German, but because the Soviets had already entered, they donned red 
armed bands and wanted to shoot him. Uh, fortunately, the Soviets showed up. And one, my uncle, Tadeusz Ungar, um, who was the, uh, the eldest of all the boys, he was 26 or so, or seven, told the so uh, Red Army officer, we're here because we're on our way to the Soviet Union because we felt we could study for free in the Soviet Union. Thank you for liberating us. And these are bandits. And the Soviet officer at first says, well, you know, there are our Ukrainian brothers and you, yes, great that you're going to the Soviet Union. Why, are you, why do you call them bandits? He said, they stole our stuff. Like what? Well, this guy has my Swiss Army knife because the, the kids were, the Polish students were searched and before being shot and told to dig a grave, but they didn't dig a grave, but they had, they had to give their stuff to that nationalist group. When the Soviet discovered that Uncle Tadja was telling the truth, and indeed the Ukrainians had the artifacts, they beat him up and let the Poles go and arrested the Ukrainians. So on the way, uh, on the way south to Shnyatin, on the Romanian border where Uncle Tadja's family was from, they were arrested by the NKVD, put in a cellar, and awaited sentencing by a revolutionary tribunal. Uh, but they escaped because the bars in the window were very poorly attached. They made it to Romania. They were put in a camp. My uncle considered all other kids nerds, so he stole some money from a Romanian store and they the whole group made it to Bucharest, jumped over the fence of the Polish embassy, got fake papers. Then they traveled to Yugoslavia where the group split. Uh, Uncle Tadja went with uh, gold smugglers and my foster father proceeded to Greece when he st where he stowed away on a ship for Marseille. Then he hopped out and uh, traveled to Kitkidam where he finished his cadet officer school. Later he fought at Narvik in Norway and then the French, instead of letting the Poles off in Scotland, insisted on the Polish brigade return to France. The Poles disembarked only to see the French capitulate the following day. So uh, my foster father's battalion commandeered a train and raced to the south of France. They were bombed out and eventually split into squads, small groups. And while attempting to cross the border of Vichy, he and three of his friends were taken prisoner by the Germans who thought they were French, but then unfortunately my foster father had a prayer book and lying in French didn't work, so they were put on a guard, put on a little cart with two wheels and conducted to a camp. On the way, the Poles jumped the two guards and <laughs> put them to sleep. So they crossed the border. Um, Nobody wanted to help. I mean, they demobilized and they got paid to stop fighting, so to speak. And then they lived in Marseille at a brothel. Only prostitutes would help them. Afterwards, they, they stole a yacht and sailed for Gibraltar. The yacht capsized because they didn't know how to sail. They were put in a concentration camp called Miranda de Rebro. They were very pissed off because the Francoists called them communists. That really didn't sit well with them. <laughs> and they managed to get out of the camp after about a year and a half, and he made it to England where he fought with the Royal Air Force's 304 Polish wing. He chased U boats. No post traumatic stress disorder, and then he <laughs> came to the United States to work on various projects which are still classified, including. Uh, the H-bomb project, his last job was chief engineer, Lawrence Livermore Lab, SDI. So, I guess the time in the brothel was very therapeutic. Oh, my, <laughs> my, my, he was 19, so my foster mother would periodically bring it up, and he, she's probably listening now, and she'd be very mad. <laughs> but she was born in 1940, for goodness sake. <laughs> but yes. Um, that's what my foster father thought about the French in general. The prostitutes were the nicest. <laughs> and I quote, they surrendered? Hell, we never surrendered. <laughs> Didn't get that memo. Anyway, thank you very much.
and I hope to see you again. You should talk about Bereza Kartuska one time. I'm serious. The two people of the two people I mentioned who advocated uh, Poland's alliance with Germany, they were both anti-Nazi because they were conservative monarchists. So they thought Nazis were churlish and they were very Catholic. One of them. Uh, for objecting to the policy of the Sanatia regime ended up in Bereza Kartuska. Stanisław Tsat Maskiewicz was his name. He was the editor-in-chief of um, a, a newspaper in Vilno, where my father was born. So, thank you. Thanks. Bye.